Morning, everyone. My name is Katie, and I will read uh, the scripture today. Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 8. I'll be reading from ESV. So Daniel 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat has a, had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with a, burnt, a regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and, giving, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand and three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to me where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power." And at the latter end of their kingdom, when their transgressors have reached their limit, 
a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning I shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Katie. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Welcome to our service for today. I'm Paul. I'm one of the pastors of our church, and it's great for all of you to join us here today as we worship our God together. And so we're currently in a series through the book of Daniel. Uh, We just read the eighth chapter, and Daniel has been a fascinating book, a book of prophecy, a lot of interesting stories. You might even say it's kind of fun, um, stories and visions. Uh, And we're in the section of Daniel where we see more of the visions of Daniel, the first uh, six chapters describe more of the, the stories of Daniel, and the seven, seven to twelve is more. Chapter seven to twelve is more of his visions, and we see another vision here today. Uh, and thankfully, we can understand these visions now, looking back from our own time here today, and from that perspective, and see how Daniel foresaw many world events that were to come. And the point of these visions are mainly to show how. There will be a lot of turmoil and a lot of chaos in our world, but ultimately we have hope and victory in Jesus Christ. So for this this week, we're looking at Daniel chapter 8 again, and and this vision is no different. Uh, Last time, two weeks ago in Daniel 7, we studied, um, that we studied, we saw the first vision with the four kingdoms described, and this introduces part of the vision that, is, uh, uh, that we see for today in our passage. It was back in Daniel 7, the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar, and Pastor Jeff focused on how God reveals this timeline of the world to Daniel and to us, and we can know what is false as a result and how it can change how we look at our own personal timelines moving forward. And then God ultimately reveals at the end, that he is victorious during these seasons, these reigns, these kingdoms, and he is ultimately victorious in Jesus Christ. Jesus has defeated sin, and we all have received this resurrection power, and we know that one day Jesus will return once again as well. And so in light of this victory, we can live lives centered on what God desires of us, where we trust in Jesus, and it transforms how we live based on God's commands and God's laws. So chapter 8's vision that happens only a couple years later, says it happened on the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Daniel has another vision that is somewhat similar to chapter 7. Not similar in content because it's very different in content, 
but it is similar about the, the kingdoms and describes more detail of what is to happen uh, with these kingdoms over time. And the result is, you can probably guess from what we've read, not good, not good at all. So let's uh, go into our passage, and we'll see um, what Daniel is seeing here. And it describes this vision, or you can break it down into actually three maybe mini-visions, if you will. But let's see how the Lord will speak to us. Let's pray and ask God for his help. God, help us this morning as we look into your word. Help us to see and understand this vision that you've given Daniel. See how it can apply to our own lives as well. Lord, may your spirit speak to us in a powerful way. Lord, even in these passages that are hard for us, Lord, we know that it is your word. It is your truth. And so help us by your grace, by your spirit, to work in our hearts, help open up our minds to know you and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid is an old 80s movie. It's called The Karate Kid. It's a great uh, underdog story about a kid from Jersey, of all places, named Daniel, coincidentally, who moved to California, um, and he immediately becomes like this outcast, this like, East Coast kid in the West Coast, and gets bullied by these kids who are really into karate, and he finds his mentor in Mr. Miyagi, who teaches him karate. And you know, Daniel initially wanted to learn karate because he was just getting bullied by these kids and wanted to kind of defend himself and fight back. But Mr. Miyagi was there to teach him not only about karate, but about life in general. And so even the way Mr. Miyagi teaches karate was unusual, right? You see, if you watched the movie, you remember he taught him to do chores, right? He was like making him uh, paint the fence and uh, wax his, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, classic automobiles, American automobiles with wax and and, you know, the most kind of vintage or famous uh, scene you see is, uh, you know, he's waxing the car, wax on, wax off. And through these chores, Daniel, uh, he thinks it's dumb and pointless. You know, we can imagine why it seems dumb and pointless. It has nothing to do with karate. But uh, Mr. Miyagi was showing him that you can learn the basics of defending yourself through these chores. And, you know, he did the up and down motions to, you know, fight off punches and wax on, wax off to fight off kicks and things like that. And so these unusual methods seemed useless to Daniel in the beginning, but it's because uh, he didn't really understand what Mr. Miyagi was doing. He didn't understand this bigger picture that he was trying to teach him. And obviously, you know, the movie is not realistic. It's not actually how you learn karate, you know, but it's a fun movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, for us to watch. But this is what we see here in Daniel as well, in the book of Daniel as well. God showing Daniel a bigger picture. Right? These visions in chapter 7 to 12 are all about God not just restoring his people back to their land, which would eventually happen, but he's showing the events of history. He's showing how God will reign throughout history and, have, and he is in control and is authoritative over the whole world and ultimately even prophesying about Jesus. And he mentions the Son of Man, not the Son of Man we saw in chapter 8, but a different Son of Man that we read in chapter 7, this, this Savior that is to come. So in this chapter, chapter 8, it is a continuation of seeing this big picture that God is showing Daniel, seeing how the future is very bleak, as I mentioned. It's going to be very, very dark in many, many respects. 
And this is what the vision shows us, that the future for God's people is very bleak. It's not going to be very good for a long time. But ultimately, that is not the end. So let's go through this vision together. So in the first 14 verses, we see the vision, uh, the full vision of Daniel. And in verses 16 to 27, the latter half of the chapter, we see an angel approach um, and interprets this dream. And we see the interpretation in verses 19 to 26. So in the first four verses, we see a vision of a ram with two horns. Right? In the interpretation of this part of the vision, we're told that this ram with two horns is the Persian Empire, essentially. The ram with two horns represents the Persian Empire, and this ram is going all different directions, right? Northward, uh, westward, southward um, in the vision. And that indicates that the kingdom, the Persian kingdom, is expanding. It's getting larger and larger. It's taking over these other lands and the people around it. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 5 that this empire is about to fall, eventually falls. It falls with the writing on the wall, right? Then in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 8, the second part of the vision shows a goat with a horn between its eyes. And that's a metaphor for the Greek empire. And specifically, uh, most commentators and scholars believe it's regarding Alexander the Great. There are clear parallels we see with Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, if you know your history, met the forces of the Persian Empire, and there was a huge battle uh, at the Branicus River where Alexander's army killed 20,000 Persians, and he only lost, their, their army only lost 100 men. So if you do the math, that is an absolute slaughter of a battle. So the Persians were completely overwhelmed by uh, the uh, Alexander the Great and his army. Then after this, we see that the large horn of the goat is broken. And as a result, four horns replace them. So this represents the division that occurs in Alexander's kingdom. We see that it gets divided into these four separate empires. And immediately after that, we see a little horn growing out of one of the bigger horns. So that's not in the picture but uh, imagine there's like a small little horn coming out of a, one of the bigger horns, and that becomes the focus of the rest of the vision. Now, there's a debate about what this uh, little horn that pops up is about. Some people believe it represents Rome, the Roman Empire, because uh, some people believe it, and some people believe it represents Syria, and specifically the uh, reign of Antiochus. And so I tend to believe that it refers to Antiochus because chronologically it appears to make the most sense. But some would disagree on that, and some people think it's the kingdom of Rome. But nevertheless, it's notable that this little horn becomes the main focus of this vision because you would think the main focus would be something like about Alexander the Great and how amazing his reign was, and, how, and that would be the focal point. We saw how massive his empire would become but instead, a little horn becomes the focus. A little horn is the focus because that is where we see that there will be much persecution against God's people. Verses 24 to 25, it says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become 
great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So this evil empire will destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. And saints are simply God's people. Not, you know, the saints that we think of with the Roman Catholic Church. Saints are not these heroic or venerated individuals that should be specifically celebrated in a specific way. We don't believe in that. We believe that followers of God are the saints. God's people are the saints. If we are Christians, we are saints. So this is whom Daniel's referring to. God's people will endure this suffering and hardship. And then we see how this empire will rise up against the prince of princes. The prince of princes refers to God. This enemy will rise up against God and rebel against God. God's people, again, will endure much hardship and suffering. This applies to us today. Christians are and will endure suffering and hardships. Again, this vision, I believe, refers to Antiochus. And do you know what Antiochus did? He was a Seleucid king who came to power around 175 B.C. And in 167 B.C., Antiochus, he defiled the temple of Jerusalem. He purposefully made offerings at the Jewish temple, at the temple of God's people, to pagan gods. He completely messed up how the Jews used the temple, didn't allow them to really use it. Their systems of offerings were changed. They had to, if they were going to offer things, they had to offer to their pagan gods. The Jews were even forbidden to do some of their practices. They couldn't circumcise their infants anymore, which was a huge part of their custom and their practice of their religion, a sign of the covenant for them. And he even killed those who did not do what he told them to do. Some of them even died if they disobeyed the king's commands. Daniel is foreseeing this hardship for God's people. And God is telling Daniel, times will be hard. It's not going to be easy. And for us as Christians, it is much the same. It's not going to be easy for us. Do we not see this type of persecution now all around the world? Christians being unable to practice their faith all around the world. Places like uh, India, Nigeria, Afghanistan, North Korea, China, and more recently places like Burkina Faso as well. Data actually shows that 1 in 12 Christians around the world face severe persecution. And we here in America are much more fortunate to not face persecution like this. None of us face persecution like these individuals do, where you're jailed or even possibly killed for your beliefs. So what we can do, as those who are not persecuted in that way, is pray, and we can be more aware of what is happening around the world. Open Doors USA has a lot of resources, including an app where we can pray for those persecuted Christians. Again, that's Open Doors USA. So please, do your research or ask us, ask the pastors. And we just had a missions conference last week, which, um, which we've heard about how difficult it has been to see um, Christian movements among the Muslims. Right? It, it's been so difficult for many years. But recently we've seen how God has been moving. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been a lot of persecution 
and antagonism and suffering on, uh, on, on behalf of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Many have had to flee their countries over the centuries, and that's why many of these places and areas continue to be unreached as a result. Places like Turkey used to be one of the epicenters of Christianity, but now it has become a place where very few are professing Christians. Very few have even heard of the gospel of Jesus. Again, we here in America do not face this type of persecution, but it is harder and harder for us to live out our faith here and now. With the social trends changing, it's harder to be openly, um, be against abortion, to be against homosexuality. The Bible in so many instances shows us that there will be suffering and hardship for his people. And perhaps you experience it in your everyday life, in the way media portrays Christianity, in the way your neighbors or friends view Christians, in the way our schools talk about Christianity in such a negative light. One specific way in which we see how our society is making it harder for us is um, in many policies and laws that actually punish us for our Christian faith. There are laws that prevent us from sharing our faith, right? Certain company policies that make it not allowed to share about your faith, right? College campuses getting harder and harder to openly evangelize to your fellow neighbors and classmates. And Christians actually have a bad reputation on a lot of campuses of being proselytizers, right? Being so open about it and trying to get others to believe in it. And so Christians are viewed in a negative Light. And I know here at Rutgers, right, right down the street, they give a really hard time to Christian organizations. And it's been getting harder and harder for our campus ministries to share the gospel. For churches, there are actually some goods and services that we cannot use because many companies require that you sign or agree to non-discriminatory policies that we cannot in good conscience adhere to. Right? Many nonprofits get extra benefits, and churches are all nonprofits. And we get discounted services in many things. But oftentimes churches cannot take advantage of that because these companies require you to agree to hire individuals regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, and things like that. So that makes it really hard for churches that believe, some, some churches believe elders and pastors cannot be women. So churches that believe that only men should be elders and pastors, they cannot sign on to this, and they technically would be discriminatory as a result. And more relevant to us, it's really hard for churches that believe homosexuality is a sin because we would not hire a pastor who believes he, uh, homosexuality is not a sin or a pastor who is a homosexual. So that would technically make us discriminatory for such practices as well. And there are churches being sued for refusing to hold gay weddings in their facilities when asked by a couple. And that's why churches have to do extra work to put in their policies and bylaws to protect themselves legally from such lawsuits. Now, these are just a few examples, and there are so many other ways we see the persecution and hardship of being followers of Christ. But despite all of that, there is hope. Verse 19 of our passage says, there will be an appointed time of the end. There will be an end. This time will end. Suffering and hardship will eventually end. 
And verse 25, at the very end of the verse, it says, he shall be broken, meaning the, the, the leader of the empire, the evil empire. Will, and it will, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So no human hand will destroy this kingdom. Only God will bring an end to this empire. God will end our sufferings and hardships. This is a promise. God says it will end. It will come to pass. God is sovereign. He is able. And we have seen this over and over again in Daniel and in the scriptures. Right? This is not the end, what we're going through now. This is not the end. And I hope this comforts us as followers of Christ. No matter what affliction you are enduring in this present time, it will end. It will cease. God in his time, in his suffering, so- sovereignty, will end our suffering. We know that Jesus will return and he will restore all things. God makes that very clear to us in Revelation 21 when John talks of the new heaven and new earth. This is when Jesus returns and he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the promise that we have when Jesus returns. And perhaps that end for some of us will not be in this life. Sometimes persecution will afflict us until the end. And perhaps we will only receive this hope in the next life. And even when we endure hardships and sufferings that lead to death in this life, it is not the end of life because we have eternal life. But it is the end to all suffering and pain. Find hope that suffering will cease. If not in this life, it will cease in the life to come. So we see that terrible things are going to happen to God's people. And we know that God is sovereign over all, and it will eventually cease. But what are we to do right now, in the meantime? Well, we see in our passage that uh, we are called to persevere in our suffering and hardships and press on knowing that God rules over all. The very last verse of our passage says this. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel was so overwhelmed by this vision that he became sick. He was sickened by it. He saw the horrors that Israel would experience in the future. And we can tell that he's not sure what all this means, even with you know, Gabriel interpreting these things. But he knows it's terrible. He's sickened. He's appalled. Again, it's going to be bad. But despite all of that, he rose up and he went about the king's business. And this is what the ESV commentary says about this. He says, Daniel did not isolate himself from the culture around him, but continued faithfully in his service of Babylonian society. So Daniel did not withdraw from the world after all that he's seen. He goes back to work. You know, if that were us, if we were Daniel and we saw visions like that, I think some of us would just like wallow and just like be like, oh my gosh, this future is so bad. What am I doing? Why am I here? Why do I go to work every day? Why do I go to school? Like, I, that's why, you know, I think we're not meant to really see visions of the future because I think 
It would break us in many respects. But Daniel does not respond that way. He does not withdraw from the world. He goes back to work. His response is to be faithful and to, to be holy, to do his duty. He's persevering through his own situation of being in Babylon. And we know that's not even a good situation. I think for us, it's easy for us to be wrapped up in our own struggles, in our own sufferings. We think about how we face all these troubles and trials as Christians. And when things get really extreme, perhaps we even question, um, we even ask ourselves and question you know, whether it's worth it to follow Jesus. Right? Is it even worth it? Well, of course, yes, it is worth it because it's the truth. It's not easy, but it's not meant to be easy. Like in the message I gave back in August from James 1, we see that trials lead to the crown of life. Trials are what help us to see our need for a Savior. We need these trials sometimes, and we are actually called to count them as joy. That's what James says. And as a result, we don't have to be caught up in thinking, oh, you know, when will these sufferings end? When will my struggles end? We don't have to throw ourselves a pity party about it. Because, oh, you know, we face so much persecution. And, you know, some people like to think Americans are the most persecuted group in, in the world, or Christian, American Christians, rather, which is obviously ridiculous, because if you actually see the world around us, that is not true at all. And tell that to even, you know, African Americans who had to endure slavery for hundreds of years, and now only until 60 years ago was it, you know, basically illegal for there to be racism. And so, you know, we as Christians, we don't have to be complainers. We as Christians, we're meant to carry a cross. There is a burden that inherently comes with being a Christian. So may we take on that burden burden with confidence, knowing that God is in control. He is taking care of all things, and this suffering will end. And he will help us in the meantime. He will help us through these trials. So even in the midst of these sufferings, we can rise up, as Daniel rose up, and fulfill our calling to be the church here gathered together and also scattered around the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So terrible things have happened and are bound to happen to the people of God. But we are called to persevere, knowing that God rules over all of it. So for some application for us today, First, do not be surprised at the difficult trials that lie ahead for us. You know, we're living in an age where being a Christian will only get harder and harder. But do not be swayed by the trends of the world or the false teachers or the false gospels that pop up that seem to be more appealing at times. Let's remember the truth of Christ and what he's done for us. So do not be surprised at these difficult trials ahead. Second, we have to remember that this is a spiritual battle happening, not an earthly one. Oftentimes we think we need to find practical ways to respond. We need to like do something pragmatic. But sometimes we're simply just called to fast, to pray, to worship, to fellowship, to love, to trust and find hope in Jesus. Daniel saw a glimpse of the future, and he didn't quite understand it. But we know what is to come. We know we have redemption, and victory in Jesus Christ. Sometimes all we can do is put our faith in Jesus. 
And lastly, we can lament and pray. I said earlier that one way we can act is to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And I want to reiterate that again. We hear this in, in our passage. We hear this holy one speaking to another holy one. Some people think it's Jesus. We're not totally sure. It's not clear. And this is presumably God of some sort, God, Jesus, speaking to an angel or angels, speaking to one another. And nevertheless, we know it's God divinely intervening. And basically, uh, this voice, this angelic voice, laments. And, and it says, how long is this vision? Right? How long is this vision? And then it, it answers, for 2,300 evenings. And scholars disagree on what that really means. Is it 2,300 days, or is it like half of that? Because you know, they counted a little differently back then. But we know that there is an end. Whether it's, uh, what is it, eight years or four years, there is an end. We hear this type of cry and lament in other parts of Scripture, this, oh, how long, right? This how long type of cry to God. So lament is biblical. When we cry out to God, it is important that we take time to do so, to cry out to God, because we live in a sinful world, and all we can do is cry out to him to help redeem this world. But when we do this, when we cry out to God, we do it in hope. We lament and pray in hope and confidence, again, because we have Jesus. We have Jesus and his promises to restore all things. This horrible season will end. So in the meantime, we can lament and pray. We can remember that all we can do is trust in God and trust in his work. And we can face the trial of the head and be aware, knowing that these things will come. These horrible situations will be there in our lives, but they will all cease. So brothers and sisters, let us press on, continue to live for our God. And remember that even in the midst of these trials, we have confidence and hope because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, even in this vision we see here today, Lord, we know that it is not a pretty picture of life to come. And we know that even as Christians now, we see how hard it is for many of us and especially our brothers and sisters around the world who live in places where being a Christian is physically dangerous, where meeting in an assembly like this is unheard of because this would create such chaos and panic for them. But God, we know that you are in control. We know that you are working for our good, redeeming the world. You are sending us out to proclaim the good news, to draw more and more people to you. But God, we also know in the meantime, it's going to continue to be hard. So God, may we persevere in suffering and in hardship. Persevere because we have Christ. We have victory in Christ. We have the promises of redemption, the promises of renewal, the promises of eternal life. And so, God, help us to hold on to this, remember this, and trust in you. And as a community, may we rise up together and press on to be faithful in this world so that we can fulfill your calling to us to continue to worship you, to love you, and to love our neighbors. 
Help us, O Lord. May your spirit work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.